Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SupChina's daily access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on our site at SupChina.com, including reported stories, editorials, and regular columns, as well as a growing library of videos and, of course, podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim people in China's Xinjiang region to China's ambitious efforts to eliminate poverty. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Today on Seneca, I am delighted to be joined by Yingyi Ma who is Associate Professor of Sociology and Senior Research Associate at the Center for Policy Research at Syracuse University's Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs, where she's also Director of the Asian-slash-Asian-American Studies Program. Yingyi is also a PIP Fellow, that is, a Fellow of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations' Excellent Public Intellectuals Program, uh, which listeners to the show have heard me talk about many times. Uh, Yingyi and I had the honor of joining Jude Blanchett and Ryan Haas for an online event put on by CSIS just last week with a keynote, actually, by Congressman Andy Kim, Democrat of New Jersey. Uh, and uh, we will link to that in the show notes. But most importantly, for our purposes today, Yingyi is the author of the book, Ambitious and Anxious, How Chinese College Students Succeed and Struggle in American Higher Education. It's a fantastically eye-opening book that is built on extensive surveys and interviews, and it focuses on Chinese undergraduates as opposed to the graduate students who, you know, until surprisingly recently made up the majority of Chinese people studying in the state. So, e, I love the book and I uh, have been really looking forward to this conversation. So, welcome to Seneca. Thank you so much, Kaiser, for having me. So, yeah, you know, I want to start by asking you about the significance of studying Chinese undergraduates in the U.S. rather than graduate students. And, and maybe you can talk about some of the numbers around this, like when the huge surge started, and I was really surprised how, how sudden that really was, and when uh, undergraduates actually surpassed graduates as a percentage of Chinese students in the U.S.? Sure. So I'll give you the number. 2005, nationwide, the total number of undergraduate students from China in the United States is less than 10,000. Oh, my God. And But in 2014, Chinese undergraduate students has become the majority of Chinese international students' population, surpassing graduate students. So, so that is really the rate of change. And the biggest year, the turning point, that was in 2014. But the, the year that really Chinese undergraduate students went through the largest growth is actually around 2006 to 2007, huh. before the financial crisis. Okay, but let's get into why uh, that happened, 2006-2007. But first, um, just just for you to sense now, what's the total number, or in the pre-pandemic year? So let's look at you know 2019. What was enrollment up there? It was like 350,000 total, is that right? Yeah, that's the total number of uh, Chinese international students at any given year. Um, uh-huh. That's that's I think this year, 2020 to 2021. That's around 370, a little bit oh, wow. over 370. Um, and that include everyone, 
undergraduate, graduate students, and、uh, a big chunk of OPT students as well. The people who are finishing their degrees but on the op- optional practical training. Undergraduate student population around before the pandemic, the total enrollment is is around a hundred eighty thousand. Okay. So. You do the math. So in two thousand five, it's less than ten thousand. And in my home institution in two thousand five, I actually started teaching at Syracuse University in two thousand six. At that time, there was none, nobody. Wow, not a single one. <laughs> Now we have a couple thousand. Oh my god!、Um, and then you look at schools like University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign,、yeah. and, and、yeah. it's just absolutely huge. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so let's go back to that year, two thousand six to two thousand seven. What caused the huge surge in enrollment? I mean, you say this is, as you point out, this is before the financial crisis. So, what what were the factors that led to that huge surge? Right. So, before I really take a closer look at the number, my assumption, along with many other observers, would assume that financial crisis actually. Really jumpstart this skyrocketing growth of Chinese undergraduate students because most of them are full, so-called full-pay students.、Right. They're not eligible for financial aid. They're not eligible for a merit or need-based scholarship. And after financial crisis, American higher education, a lot of the major universities are really cash-strapped. So there is a so- so-called perfect marriage <laughs> between the <laughs> demand of American higher education、uh, tuition. Dollars and uh, Chinese um, international students, their need for American education. But then,、right. when I was looking at the data, it really shows that the most dramatic、uh, increase year actually happens before the financial crisis. So definitely, financial crisis expedite the process, really、uh, speed up this.、Uh, but this really. Started before the financial crisis, so my research really points at the relaxing visa policies instituted by the State Department started、mm-hmm. at George W. Bush administration second term, as well as the appreciation of Chinese currency yuan during the period of two thousand five to two thousand fourteen. There was a, a very significant appreciation, you know, starting around yeah two thousand five and then all through. Two thousand fourteen, thirty-seven percent. Wow! Right, thirty-seven percent of appreciation of Chinese currency before two thousand five. Between nineteen ninety-eight to two thousand five, the eight point three to the dollar for a long it's time. It's eight. Yeah, yeah it's yeah, eight point eight point three, as you said. It's right, it stayed right. constant for. Uh, during the during the late nineteen nineties to two thousand five, so so it really coincides with this dramatic growth of Chinese un, un, undergraduate students. Right, I remember getting paid in American dollars back then and going、uh, after, as, as, as as watching the, the anyway.、Um, it's great.、Uh, the, the fact though that that these are undergraduates, it strikes me as really important in another way though. I mean, I. I feel like just from my own experience, just watching the people around me when I was in college, just how transformative those those particular four years. I think it was always brilliant that that you know they they made the undergraduate years ages eighteen to twenty two because people just change so much. I mean, the intellectual and the emotional maturation that happens then, just the intensity of the change that you undergo in those four years. I mean. And you're compounding this with spending those those four years in a foreign country in a totally different environment. I mean, that must have been part of what drew you to studying undergraduates, maybe. Yeah. 
Yes, you're absolutely right. This act actually has、uh, kindled my curiosity about what has happened to、yeah. this population because they're so different, both academically and socially.、Uh, they're really.、Um, To some extent, inhabiting very distinct academic and social spaces compared to their graduate student counterparts. Oh, completely, yeah, completely. I mean, I think it's also really significant, as your book makes very clear, that this wave of students, you know, coming to the United States, they're particular in, a, in another couple of ways. One is that they are all products of one-child families, right? These are all people born in in the 1990s, really, 1980s and 1990s, when the one-child policy was in full effect. That's got to make a difference as well, because you know I've always they're amb- ambitious and anxious, as you said. I mean, but that's that's so true of of one child children, even in China. I feel like they are both you know, empowered by being only children, and also just kind of entitled and spoiled. And <laughs> yes, definitely, I think this one child policy has a, a deep influence upon the experience and、uh, the ability, actually, for. This cohort of Chinese undergraduate students to be able to study in the United States because think about it: if you have this whole family and even sometimes extended families' resources、uh, put into this one child's education abroad, and that is really going to make a lot of people journey to the United States even possible. But I want to point out, Kaiser, that not everyone, even in my study. Is coming from one child um, generation, um,、right. so demographers actually specializing in Chinese population policy、uh, point out that one child policy is 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 a little bit、uh, misnomer because、uh, at some point one child policy is really one point five policy right, because right. in many provinces people can be allowed to have two children. Like for example, in my in my research, I have a Several students having smaller siblings, and when they're talking about their plans for the future, they obviously have this obligation to pay back to not only their parents but also to make enough money to sponsor their younger siblings or、uh, whatever、yeah. their future ed- ed- education or career goals. So that really speaks to this, you know, this duality of ambition and, and, and anxiety. So they they're very ambitious to not only make a Uh, make it, you know, on their own, but also、uh, to pay back and、uh, make their parents' sacrifice and their whole family's investment into their education worth it. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, parents, as you mentioned, I mean, your research makes very clear,、uh, they had and they continue to have just a huge role in not just in- enabling their their children to go to s- study in the U.S., but also in the decision. To do it in the first place, so let's talk about the fundamental logic of why these parents want their kids to go to college in the states rather than in China. I mean, you describe studying abroad and especially studying abroad in the U.S. as the new education gospel in China. So, what would you describe as sort of the, the theological underpinnings of this new gospel? Sure. I use the term "education gospel" primarily to refer to this perception that education is a savior. That's a widely held belief, and now this new education gospel is is that studying in the United States or studying abroad in general is going to save them from, first of all, this very competitive and sometimes relentless. 
higher education admissions policies in China that really literally shut a lot of students out of their dream colleges. So、right. that's one. The Gaokao, as we're talking about, right? right. And second, Gaokao, right? So even if some students, a big chunk of my study participants have opt opted. Out of Gaokao, so they didn't really、right. take take Gaokao. Thirty seven percent of my study participants took Gaokao, but still chose to study abroad、hmm. um, because they either think American higher education is superior to whatever colleges their Gaokao score make them eligible to go to, or their Gaokao score is not satisfying enough for them to go to their dream colleges. And a small minority of people, they can go to top colleges in China. They still prefer American higher education. Like for example, there is this one student in my study who can go to Zhejiang University, Zheda, which is the good, top yeah. tier. Yeah, the yeah. top tier. And he actually chose to finally go to University of Wisconsin Madison. Also, because <laughs> yes, because、uh, in in his view that American higher education just provided a better. More well-rounded, more、um, balanced、uh, human development opportunity、mm-hmm. for them. So that's the education gospel. Really refers to multiple dimensions of liberation、uh, in. For different people at different, I would say, locations of education opportunities in China. So I mean, we, you've talked about in your book how there are both push and pull factors.、Uh, obviously, the dread of the Gaokao is is one of the big pushes. But also, you know, there I thought it was really interesting that a large number of the parents of students that you surveyed were actually college professors in China,、yeah. and you know, these are insiders and they know the, the system. And so maybe it's it's surprising to some people here that they're the ones who are warning their kids away from universities、uh, in China. Yeah, a lot of them talk about how. Uh, they're not incentivized to care about undergraduates, or to, to or they they don't really、right. want to teach. I mean, that's not why they are academics. It's it's interesting. Yeah. So Kaiser, I'm so glad you mentioned that because that's actually one of the very surprising findings.、Um, I would actually perceive、uh, when I was conducting the research, when I was collecting the occupational data for both fathers and mothers.、Um, so it's. Actually, pretty diverse. It's not just you know those wealthy CEOs and senior management folks. They're you know children of engineers, doctors, teachers. Cab drivers. One of them is from Beijing, a cab driver, right? I remember. Yeah, is、uh, drivers and you know factory workers, and those people are、uh, you know a minority of those、uh, who are able to make it.、Uh, working class families, and they usually realize、um, the profit from their. Real estate, their apartments in, in right, right, mega cities, and you know, real realize the profit and be, being able to send their children abroad because their income is just far below the you know the level that they they're able to afford. So, so you have this,、uh, you, you know. I hope someone can study this. You have this very big gap in terms of income and wealth、uh, right, in right, China. Right.、Uh, it's not just Beijing or Shanghai. It actually happens to. All the major, you know, first tier, second tier、yeah. cities, they all have.、Um, if they have apartment before two thousand four five, they're all like millionaires.、Um, right, people right. are saying. So no matter how much, how low your income is, anyway. So the college professor is a very interesting example. They're actually one of the top five. Most frequently mentioned occupations for、wow. Chinese students in my study. That's that's from the survey, and I was very in, 
you know, curious to find out why. That's why, you know, during the interview, I was able to ask this question, like, your parents are already the professors. What do they tell you to get away from, you know, Chinese colleges? And, and here is what they said. They said their parents tell them that today's Chinese colleges, the instruction level They're not as high as, let's say, 10 or 20 years ago, because it's actually pretty ironic. If you're looking at the Chinese higher education quality in terms of the number of publications they have, the number of citations they have, sort of all these indicators of research productivity, Chinese higher education has made huge strides over the past decade. And all those uh, research indicators influence the world-class ranking Right. of those higher education. So if you're looking at the world-class universities, Chinese higher education has made a lot of progress over the past decade. But at the same time, there is this priority shifted from you know, teaching to research. There is this big emphasis on research. And many, many professors are very much incentivized to publish, to get funding. And teaching, you know, has just not been the priority of them. And that very much influenced the undergraduate instruction, right. especially at prestigious universities. And the quality drop is pretty significant. And, and that's why these insiders of uh, Chinese higher education want to send their children abroad. Be- because especially a lot of those people who are insiders of Chinese higher education, they have experience abroad. They're being visiting scholars, they're being visiting researchers, and they have some close look at American higher education, and they're impressed. So they want to have, you know, their children to have it. For, for sure, for sure. So we've talked about a couple of these push factors, uh, but let's talk about some of the pull ones. One idea that you bring up, which I think is really interesting, is this idea of cosmopolitan capital. And so maybe talk about what you think that is and, and whether it's something that Chinese parents or students are, are conscious of as a motive for wanting to do their undergraduate study in the U.S., cosmopolitan capital. Yeah, so cosmopolitan capital is a, a sociological term. Um, basically, it refers to global social and cultural capital that, mm-hmm. you know, who you know and what you know, uh, that can make you super confident uh, and comfortable in a cosmopolitan setting. So what is that? This generation of Chinese students, they're very comfortable and embracing globalization. And they think to have this kinds of a global social and cultural capital is going to be crucial to their future career success. Right. And that is why they perceive studying in the American higher education perceived as epicenter of this kind of a global um, cultural and social capital, uh, it's going to provide the ticket to success. And that is not not just about the credentials. It's, it's, it's also about, you know, their English proficiency, you know, the cultural capital in terms of um, the way they speak, the mannerism, the way they carry themselves, their hobbies, the kinds of people they know. So um, because I know that, Kaiser, you might be interested in asking me questions about, you know, their social life, their friendship. And I think, you know, because they're actually motivated to acquire cosmopolitan capital, global, this global social capital, it's actually very much uh, logical for them to be very motivated to make American friends, because that's also part of that uh, cosmopolitan capital as well. 
and we'll get into why this ambition is also met with you know a lot of anxiety mm-hmm. uh, uh, when, we, when they talk about making friends. So in in the book, you introduce us to a really popular television series in China. I think it was on one of the streaming services. It's called Xiaobieli. Yeah. Yeah. The show was very zeitgeist, apparently. I mean, it was very much kind of, the, the, you know, representing this whole wave of, you know, the new education gospel. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the show and, and what you think it illuminated in terms of understanding this study in America fever? Yes. So the show Xiaobieli... I actually find it very illustrative of how pervasive the culture of study abroad is. So the show features three types of families. And uh, as a sociologist, I am uh, keenly sensitive about uh, the social backgrounds the three families are. And I am glad to find that the three families are actually coming from very different socioeconomic statuses in China. So one is from this so-called typical wealthy families. Um, his father is a CEO, and it seems that, you know, stereotypically, a lot of uh, families with a CEO father would experience divorce. So right. that's what happened. has a young wife, and there is this uh, attention in the family relationship. This child, who is a boy, is very antagonistic uh, towards um, his ste- stepmom, who is very young, and this young boy, academically is uh, struggling right. and he, he is his, his dad is so busy and successful doesn't really spend a lot of time with this boy and 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 so to him study abroad is educational gospel in terms of basically uh, saving him from academic and educational disaster in Chinese system he's right. basically struggling and failing so so that is one family wealthy, sort of occupying at the highest level of SES, social economic status in, chi- in, in the city. The second is a typical middle class family. The second family is uh, actually the zhujue, uh-huh. the main feature, I would say, um, in, the, in the show. The father is an eye doctor. The mother is a, a senior manager in a multinational company. And we have to say that, you know, Chinese doctor uh, is way much lower paid than the American right, doctor. Right, right. It's, it's not wealthy at all. It's, it's a middle class. And actually featured in this particular family, the eye doctor uh, is played by the, this very renowned Chinese actor Huang Lei. Oh. And he's pretty marginalized in the family. The mother, the wife, who is a, a senior manager in the company, is is a is a, 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 a strong character, um, and the dad is more caring and uh, is more like a, a hu ma mao ba kind of type, <laughs> you know. So so that's the second family, and and they have a daughter, and the daughter is it's almost like consistent with their SES social economic uh, background. The daughter is academically like mediocre. It's it's not like struggling or failing, but it's not excellent. Okay, mm-hmm. here comes the third family. The third family, uh, whose dad is a is a taxi driver, All right. and mom is a nurse work in the. A community health center, which is a pretty lower tiered kind of a health facility in China. So that family, you know, they're they're very interestingly they're living in the same community, like same neighborhood, but their apartment smaller and less as fancy. Clearly, they're coming from a working class family. Right. But their daughter is academically most outstanding of the three, and all three of them have this plan to study abroad. 
with different purpose. The girl from this uh, working class family, most academically outstanding, she's eligible even to be qualified for the best universities in China, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. such as you know. So her dad, uh, who is a taxi driver, who is a local uh, native person from Beijing, and and he's actually not very enthusiastic to support uh, his daughter to study abroad. He said, you know, he's studying so well, and why not just stay in Beijing and go to the best universities in China? But her mom is a very ambitious woman. This woman who is a community uh, working at a community health center as a nurse, and she felt like her life has a lot of uh, disappointments, and she had a lot of dreams for herself, but she could not really realize it. Yeah. And she felt like she wants her daughter to have it. I think even though the the show doesn't really pinpoint that, the kinds of sentiments her mom really shows, and you know, she desired, but she doesn't. She doesn't really have it. Is a kind of cosmopolitan capital, like yeah, she yeah, wants yeah. her daughter to have. So all the three people have the same dream to study abroad and plan. They're act- actively uh, doing and planning to study abroad. And I use that show to really demonstrate that study abroad has become uh, so pervasive and has generated this culture and fever in China. Urban That's China right. I mean, the, the son of the CEO very much responding to push, you know, variables. Like he's not going to do well if he stays. It's the the Gaokao is going to you know end in disaster for him. He won't be able to go to good school. He won't academically perform well. And then the the, the daughter of the, the cab driver and the nurse. Um, it's entire. I mean, she has no push factors. She could go to Beida or Tsinghua. She has. It's entirely pull. It's all mm-hmm. the, the sort of cultural capital. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's or the, the cosmopolitan capital. That's mm-hmm. fantastic. Um, I, I'm I'm going to watch it. My daughter uh, says the second season is better. I don't know I mean, for whatever. I'll, I'll have to check that out. She says it. <laughs> there is a second even, season. I don't yeah, even know. The, apparently, there's a second season. And she says it's it's really really good. You know, Kaiser. Uh, if I may. You know, I think the post-pandemic world, that show was at least three or four years ago. Right, right. And I think the post-pandemic world and all this U.S.-China geopolitical tensions probably will make this fact, the pull factor, less salient. So I am doubtful that this daughter of working class family who is able to go to the top universities in China nowadays would still have these kinds of um, preference or aspirations for university abroad. I doubt it. Yeah, I would tend to agree. Yeah, I would t- let's let's um, put a pin in that because I, I want to ask you all about sort of the post-pandemic world, uh, mm-hmm. which, you know, unfortunately wasn't in your book because you obviously had to finish writing it well before that. But let's let's uh, let's let's talk about that in in a bit. But first, I want to talk about uh, the international divisions at Chinese high schools and mm-hmm. the role that they seem to play in driving kids towards studying in the U.S. I mean, this wasn't a thing when I was younger. Uh, you know, they didn't have. But now it seems like a, a lot of educational institutions have, you know, like a, a, a attached high school, and a lot of these have, you know, a guozibu, mm-hmm. uh, an international division. And for a while, I mean, my kids went to an international school in, in they, they went to Fang Di, which is a famous elementary school in China, to the mm-hmm. international division. But that was only for foreign nationals. Yeah. You had to actually be, a, a, you know, a passport holder uh, of a foreign country in order to be enrolled there. 
It's different, though, with these high schools. You can go to the international division even as a Chinese national. Uh, and that is something that's happening more and more. Can you, can you talk about how this is happening and, and the role that, that these international divisions of Chinese schools are playing? Absolutely. So I actually discovered this new phenomenon actually after I started this research. So I, I was not even aware. Like you, Kaiser, I was not, it was not um, part of my presence in China. When I was in China, yeah. there's no, didn't really exist. So during my research, I found out that the first such um, international division within a public school setting uh, started in um, the major one, started in Renda Fuzhong. Uh, that's right. in 2004. So as you said, international schools used to be predominantly accessible to foreign passport holders. Right. So now the international divisions uh, in predominantly, usually very prestigious public high schools are usually taken by Chinese citizens who used to be enrolled in the same high schools, but now choose to be on the international track, which oftentimes opt out, out of Gaokao. So they didn't really take Gaokao. Right. And that international division's role is actively prepare the students for higher education abroad, either in the United States or in the U in the UK. And, and that characterized by their curriculum. So in other words, if they want to study um, in the UK, they are enrolled in the British A-level system. Right, but, the A-levels, right. But that A-level system doesn't preclude you from applying to the US system. So I've had students who were at the high school A-level but still studying in the US. But a lot of students also study uh, for the AP curriculum as well. So that directly prepare them. Right for American higher education. And international baccalaureate too, right? That's, that's IB, yes, yeah, yes. Right. So British A-level, IB system, and the APs. AP. Yeah, right, yeah. Right. Wow, that's, uh, it's, it's fascinating. Um, many, I think, of the Chinese students that you interviewed also used these agent services that kind of act like Sherpas to, you know, take the applicants from China up the mountain and get them into these top-ranked universities. Uh, these, to me, seem really problematic. I mean, it seems like it, it's borderline unethical, but they also are highly effective and maybe even indispensable, I think, for a lot of the people that you talk to. Can you tell us about what these services are and, and what they do? What wasn't clear to me is, are the people working at these services who are running these services, are they typically Chinese nationals? Are, are they foreigners are they chinese nationals who have gone through the process themselves and uh, you know and how how common is this how common is this for the students that come to the us well first of all it's very common and um i think part of the argument i am trying to make in this book is that um agent really filled the void between the american higher education system which is clearly alien to chinese applicants who are coming from totally different educational system. Right. Um, and, you know, they're either ignorant or not as confident about how to navigate the system. So agent just meet the demand, the need of those Chinese students. And in this process, American higher education are pretty much hands off because they either don't really reach out to the Chinese students directly or they don't really... Um, Many, many American universities uh, don't really directly reach out to those high schools 
you know, where the Chinese students are studying. So there's lack of communication between the applicants and the university. And at the same time, the Chinese applicants, the Chinese students are either, as I said, not confident. For the most part, I think they're not familiar with the system. So they just need help. And that's, you know, don't forget, that's the large picture that agents or various kinds of agency really operate. Okay. okay. And for the most part, uh, my participants are actually very much appreciate uh, the help and support from the agent. I think, you know, it's very hard to characterize who the agent are. They're, they have very, very diverse background. And largely, the market has been very much unregulated by the right. government. So, you know, everyone can be an agent if you can get your students. So um, it, a lot of them are Ch Chinese nationals. Some of them have experience, but that certainly are not the requirements. Mm -hmm. So uh, the new Oriental, Xindongfang, has uh -huh. a pretty large system, uh, if not the largest. I think they have a quite recently gained some formidable um, competitors, but they right. used to occupy the biggest share. So the agent really have very different uh, functions as well. Some really, you know, are responsible for from the beginning to end, you know, uh, right. to help you prepare for the tests, uh, you know, including test prep, college choices, uh, application essays, everything to the end. And they charge the fee for the total amount of the service. Other agents are more specialized. They're not going to help you with the test. They, they're only going to help you with the essays or to shepherd you through the college application process. Right. So I think the deeply problematic cases are there, but I would not really characterize them as universal. What um, stuck with me was, I mean, how often people seem to report how they weren't even able to see the final version of their of their personal essay, of their personal statement. Yes, that's that's some of the reports. Not not all, but some of the students were, you know, unhappy because um, they were not able to see the final version of their essay, or they were not able to uh, see all their application results. They were only delivered the uh, their offer letter. Right. So right. there is some mistrust going on, but there is also deep appreciation on the part of Chinese applicants. I remember there's a student saying that she actually got so much help from her agent um, that it's not just for the college application. It's it's helped her to understand who she is in terms right. of identifying her interests, <laughs> her abilities, her weaknesses. So that's what I'm saying is, I think American education system, the college admission system is so, the requirements are so broad and demanding and elusive compared to the whole Chinese education system. Before, they're extremely test-oriented and, and very much specific in terms of what's required, what's required what's expected. So what's expected in American higher education has a almost a mismatch uh, with the educational and uh, cultural backgrounds that Chinese students are from. So they just need to master this technique of college application almost <laughs> within a short period of, of time. And, um, you know, some students have to go through a lot of very quick courses to equip themselves with, you know, I have this experience, I have those 
volunteer experience. I have those、uh, extracurricular activities. That's all lacking in a typical Chinese high school, right? I mean, exactly. Have, I mean,、yeah. think about it. My son is ten year old, and and he has already had you know quite a bit of extracurricular activities, right? So 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 Chinese education system doesn't really institutionalize those kinds of.、Um, Extracurricular activities, volunteer,、uh, group work—you know those kinds of things that is expected in the American higher education system. Right. So、um, that's that's actually the argument I'm trying to make. That I don't really think American admissions office people are aware of this gap. No, that I, that seems that's obviously the case right now. Uh, also, in your book, you talk about the phenomenon of these private high schools in China, which have really blown up in the last few years. And there's one in particular that you zoom in on. It's called Pioneer in Chengdu. Yeah. And it seemed really wonderful. And yeah. And like all the, their whole ethos, the 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 man who started the school、uh, started just boarding children of、uh, friends, you know, and often they're quite problematic children. Yeah.、Uh, and he's had a Phenomenal success rate, and he seems to have like this pedagogical kind of theory driving what he does. That's quite inspiring. Can you talk a little bit about him?、Uh, I think his yeah. Name is, you don't give his full name, just his surname. Yeah, I don't really think he probably would be identified with the full name. He's a、uh, um, let's just say Mr. Chen, and、okay. uh, he got his master's degree from the United States in education management or education leadership. And so he, after getting the master's degree, he went back to Beijing. And、um, as you said, he started actually.、Uh, he has a day job working in the government ministry of education, and he has. Back in 1990s, few people had、uh, his experience of having a, a graduate school. Specializing in education leadership, so at that time most of the Chinese international students、uh, work in STEM fields. So he has had this very westernized pedagogy and education philosophy that he started to experiment with his friends'、uh, kids in just in his living room, and most often his friends' kids. Struggle academically in the traditional Chinese schools, so he started from there, and he started this private school with very small scale. And the location is is very interesting. It's in the in the real estate selling center. Right, I remember that. That was like donation, though, right? I mean, somebody gave that. Yeah, that was that space was donated by his former student. So, so I think that example really shows how. Interesting and diverse and entrepreneurial nowadays. Chinese、uh, private education sector has become. It's very、uh, vibrant community. It's extremely small, and、um, the school reflects his education philosophy. That is, no test. There is no test whatsoever in this school, and all the students. Went through the system and、um, even went through the college application without taking TOEFL. Oh, no TOEFL even. Oh,、uh, let me see. Without taking, yeah, I think I think he successfully negotiated. He has built a lot of networks with small liberal arts colleges in the United、mm. States, and and I have to point out that most of the、uh, small liberal arts colleges he has built are not really those top tier schools. So in other words. 
you know, even though his school is very much uh, lively and very authentic to his educational philosophy, it is not going to be super attractive to a majority of Chinese families because right. all they look at is the rankings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've shown in other parts of my book, ranking is still uh, guiding the college choice process, especially for elites of families. So most of the children in his schools are either academically struggling and parents have really tried many, many different ways. In other schools, it didn't work. So they sent his way. So a lot of the, the students went to small liberal colleges and he was able to negotiate test waiver and even $10,000, $20,000 scholarship for those for those students. Fantastic. So it's really a win-win. I think the only thing is this, these are not uh, even top 100 colleges in yeah, the United States. So what? <laughs> yeah, that's right. one of the, the great pathologies of, of, of Chinese parents is they, you know, you ask most of them why they want, you know, what is it about Yale that attracts, what is it about Princeton, what is it about Stanford, and they they can't even really tell you. They just know that that it's you know Ming Xiao. Anyway, let's let's talk about money. I mean, as you said, one of the big differences between the graduate students of of your and the undergrads and undergrads of today is that the former were mostly funded, and now they're overwhelmingly self-funding, you know, over 90%. They often pay full fare, you know, out-of-state or even international tuition. So two things. Uh, first, there's this idea that's been popularized by, I think, a lot of widely read media accounts that all these undergraduates are just filthy rich. And second, there's, and I think maybe this is more accurate, this idea that the influx of tuition has really helped to turn things around for colleges and universities, especially after the financial crisis, and that they've become quite dependent on that income. Can you talk about both these ideas? First, about this idea that they're all you know rich kids, and then second, about the dependency idea of uh, uh, universities on, on Chinese students. Yes. Yeah, so actually, I think I started this book trying to understand a, a fuller picture of the background, academic and social backgrounds of Chinese undergraduate students. And the stereotype is, uh, is, is not true that um, most of students are not from super rich families. As I said, uh, some of them are even from working class families. And some of the parents are selling their only apartments, moving from the downtown of Shanghai to the outskirts of Shanghai, realizing the profits. And guess what? That profit can um, enable them to go to places like University of California and, and you know, UCSB, Santa Barbara. So that's also a very expensive school. But realizing that's really the whole family make huge sacrifice right. for that um, for that child's education abroad. But graduate students, I think, really at the doctoral level that are still so largely funded by American higher education. And right. they are oftentimes working as teaching assistant and, work, and research assistant, especially in STEM fields. And people... Uh, studying this phenomenon actually describe this as an academic sweatshop as well because yeah, um, yeah. because it is pretty much populated by students, international students, not just from China, from India, from Turkey, from many other countries, oftentimes global south, and they constitute the bulk of uh, biology, physics, all these kinds of uh, experiment laboratory-driven research. Right. Yeah, and also postdoc. And at the master level, increasingly, Chinese students um, use their family funds for um, their education as well. So 
it's I have to really specify it's a doctoral level uh, graduate students education is funded oftentimes funded by American higher education. Right, right. Oh, I yeah. just just an aside. I was at a party, uh, first party I'd gone to since you know post vaccination. Uh, I was chatting with a uh, Duke uh, economics professor. He told me that over ninety percent of master's students at Duke are from the PRC. It's just a stun in, in economics. It's yes. just astonishing. I- yes, it's not. It's actually pretty common. Um, I would wow. say not just <laughs> e- in economics. If you go to business school, uh, programs like finance, accounting, it's also that level of um, 90%, even 100% of students from China at master level. It's becoming a cash machine. Right. So these programs, I mean, because as you said, you know, these are, you were talking about PhD students who are, are, you know, working in these academic sweatshops or uh, who have RA ships or TA ships. Uh, But at the master's level, that's not the case. These are still self-funding for the most part. And they are really, really paying for these programs. I mean, I I can't even imagine how some of these master's programs could stay afloat without. uh, So we'll we'll get to, you know, what's happening now with uh, the post-COVID decline in the numbers of students. But tell me about the undergraduates and and how what the, the percentage of 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 total tuition in, intake is coming from PRC for some of these large especially midwestern state schools yeah so some of the uh, enrollment data it's pretty striking i remember there is a, a brookings report showing that among the top 25 universities experiencing the largest growth of international students from china nine are in the midwest so o- Ohio State University, um, mm-hmm. UIUC, Purdue yeah. University, those are the typical cases. And even University of Delaware, which is not in the Midwest, experienced Chinese undergraduate students in 2007 is like less than 100. And in 2014-15 is like 3,000, 4,000. So that kinds of growth. And, you know, you can just imagine it's a huge revenue generator for American higher education. And there is a myth, I think, largely held by uh, in, a, in American public discourse that those international students, especially at undergraduate level, uh, especially for the state universities, they're taking away the seats for American domestic students. Right. And that is a myth because, I mean, for anybody who is working in the higher education, we know that those revenue generating directly sponsor domestic students, scholarships, financial aid, and so on and so forth. But recently, I just read a Princeton University uh, scientist publish a paper quantifying how international student tuition dollars are really associated with uh, domestic students' uh, seats. So so it's not really taking away domestic students' seats. It's directly translating domestic students' programs by creating more faculty positions, by creating more scholarships, by creating more services, especially provided to uh, pe- students of color, domestic yeah, students yeah. of color. I've I've made that argument many times and with you know people who've been arguing with me about affirmative action and and, and Asian American students. Anyway, I want to get to this. This is I think one of the central things in your book. Uh there's this paradox that you point out that the, that especially after the Shanghai students did so well on the PISA exams yeah. a few years back, 
Americans often look to China for ways to improve、yeah. their education system, but Chinese, conversely, are looking to the United States as a model、yeah. for improvement of of the Chinese education system. So, is this just a matter of the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence, or is there, as I suspect, actually a lot for each system to learn from the other? I think both. There's definitely、okay. some kinds of sentiments that grass is greener on the other side. I think it's there is a, you know, deeply arising out of、um, ignorance about the other system. You、uh-huh. know, if you're talking to Chinese、uh, students and Chinese people in general about, you know, the PISA results, when Americans are so shocked and so impressed, and you know, Chinese students was just very, very. Indifferent or showing some sense of apathy towards this result, they would say, "Of course, you know that's how Chinese students are good at. They're good at taking tests because、mm-hmm. that's how their、mm-hmm. their system is largely trained themselves to、uh, to to be a good test taker." But that what does that really re- you know represent? If、uh, anything,、right? it points out some of the weaknesses of the Chinese education system, right? Exactly. So yeah, yeah. the second point Kaiser you're raising is also very valid. That、um, I I do think the two systems should learn from each other, and to a great extent, I think Chinese international students at undergraduate level, many of them. Navigate the K to twelve system in China, so called basic education, compulsory education stage in China, and then go through the post secondary education in the United States. They're actually trying to combine the best of the two worlds in、right. their own words, and they're trying to get the best elements of different education system、um, and trying to take advantage of it to some extent. And your your book lays out what some of those those are the four things these as- aspects of the differences that you think that Chinese are interested in sort of acquiring. Just really quickly, you know, one of them is creativity. There's this real widespread perception that that、um, you're better equipped to be creative coming out of an American education.、Uh, critical thinking、uh, is, is another one that you often hear talked about. This sort of idea that the dichotomy between ability. You know, and effort, ability, and effort, right? So, yeah. Or, or you could talk about like a fixed versus a growth mindset, right? And then the the fourth thing is this sort of attitude toward math. I mean, not just talking about within you know educational institutions, but、yeah. sort of in society.、Uh, so maybe we can talk about each of these four areas and and what your research revealed about them, starting with. Creativity, this idea. Yeah, so、um, I'd like to talk about critical thinking and creativity together because yeah, sure,、um, sure. I think when the students are talking about creativity and critical thinking, they're oftentimes use these two terms interchangeably. And、mm-hmm. in my research, I really conclude that you know, in their in their views, critical thinking is a means to achieve、uh, creativity. So I actually consider Chinese international students because they navigate the straddle the two education systems. They're really the experts who have the insights of the both systems. That's why you know I'm trying to use their voices and identify the strengths and weaknesses of the two systems. So yes, a lot of. Chinese international students are favorably impressed with how creative、uh, their American、uh, classmates are, and you know when they're talking about、uh, when it in the teamwork settings, and they're actually favorably impressed by their American classmates how open-minded they are, how creative their solutions are, and their classmates remind them, like for example, of、um, their artistic skills. They feel like they have lost, or they feel like there、uh, there's some kinds of skills they feel stunted by the years of test-oriented、um, system in China. 
So all of that really led them to feel favorably about American system being creative. At the same time, I think they are um, they have a pretty nuanced views about a creativity and critical thinking as well. They feel like um, in certain domains, for example, math and science, creativity has some kinds of uh, preconditions. And they feel that, you know, they are somehow well positioned because of the good foundations they have laid in the Chinese system. They have a good foundations in math and science, right. and that enable them to exercise their creativity that some of their American counterparts are not able to. I totally believe that. I mean, you know, you can't be creative in literature if you. Aren't literate, right? Right.、Uh, right. Right. You need to know the basics of mechanics and grammar. And right. And, so. and in the、uh, in computer science, in engineering,、right. that is even more、uh, even more obvious because those subjects are sequential. So right. Right, right. yeah, some of the students actually are talking about their experiences, like being in China. They're not really so so strong in math, but in America, they somehow are able to. <laughs> Landing on a low gravity planet—they are able to. They they know that they're not gifted, certainly, but but they feel like they're at least they're they're able to access the field. Like for example, statistics. You know, they this is this is something like you know their pragmatic mindset comes in in terms of they want to get a job, for example, in a company that really requires stat skills. But for a lot of American students, if they don't really think they're good at math, that door is really shut down. It's not it's not possible for them to major in statistics anymore. But for Chinese students, yes, they can because they have even though they're not gifted, they can do it still. Surprisingly, I think Chinese education actually starts tracking students much later. I mean, not until really your junior year of college or your, yes, you know, GAR, I guess,、uh, and then not the same as、uh, the U.S., which, which begins sort of tracking people much earlier. Right, right, right. Yeah, so,、yeah. yes, the U.S. students, especially for math, oftentimes they. They quit it too early, too soon. So, yeah, and yeah. and the tracking structure really set up for that kinds of、um, early leaving. Yeah. So we're talking a little bit now about this this third thing, this sort of attitudes toward math.、Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's that's very much the case. You see these sort of、uh, you you talk about one a very famous essay that went around. You know, is algebra really necessary? Yeah.、Right? Of course, it's necessary. Christ, I can't. Even, I I have to do algebra in my normal life. Anyway.、Um, I thought it was really interesting. Going back to creativity and critical thinking, is that it relates to this idea about you know speaking the, the hesitance that a lot of Chinese students have about、mm. speaking up in class, because a lot of the the, the difference here isn't about a binary、uh, yeah. approach to problem solving versus an open ended one, where you、mm -hmm. know you know. Uh, this idea that a multiplicity of answers are possible, you know,、uh, that invites students to kind of、uh, give their own perspectives, and that's something that Chinese students often, you know, as cliche as it might sound, just they they, they come in、uh, sort of unprepared for that. Yeah, yeah, so that has a lot to do with their previous education system. Uh, their previous education system hasn't really primed themselves to for those kinds of open-ended discussion or like like you said a multitude of answers. The previous education system is test-oriented. The test usually has a right or wrong, right? This binary, a very definitive, close-ended response. That really, you know, Chinese students use that as a reference to. 
um, utilize in their judgment. Um, it's sometimes very hard to even break out of, even though as hard as they try to. But it's at least ten years of accumulation of habits. For sure, for sure. Yeah. Uh, talk about where the Chinese and and American education systems and where individuals come down on this this dichotomy between ability and effort. I mean,、mm. here in the United States, I feel like there's you know too much of a, a belief in 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 innate ability. But recently, I th- I feel like that's changing. We've seen the popularity, and you talk about this in your book of of books like Grit,、uh, yeah, by Angela Duckworth,、um, who interestingly is is ethnically Chinese, yeah. <laughs>、uh, But、uh, is that changing in America? Is that one of the things that we're maybe learning from Asia that that we should sort of get out of this、uh, this fixed、mm. idea and more embrace a more growth mindset? Yeah, it's not just Angela Duckworth's grit、uh, book.、Um, I think you know this whole this whole popularity of growth mindset, right? It's also right.、Uh, really、um, consistent with this idea of effort rather than fixed, you know, ability. But I think it's it goes beyond、um, the awareness or these cultural values. I think it's structural.、Mm. That's why you know we have to talk about tracking.、Um, tracking in the United States starts much earlier and much more pervasive than the Chinese system. So the Chinese system is a lot more、uh, standardized in terms of people at the same grade.、Um, Take the same kinds of subject, no matter how outstanding or how you,、uh, how people are struggling. So individual students may really、uh, feel what a pain, right? In that system, like if you're not good at math and you're ha- you have to study math until like twelve, you know, twelfth、uh, grade.、Um, everybody has to master,、uh, you know. Advanced algebra, even though you are still struggling at arithmetic, that's a pain individually. But think about it for a lot of other students; they're like in between. You know, if if you push them a little bit, and if the system expects them just a little bit higher, they're they're just gonna make more effort, yeah, and that's、yeah. gonna probably open them up for additional opportunities later on when you know this. This statistics major comes up, or this computer science opportunity comes up, and they would say to themselves, "All right, I can do it." Rather than in the U.S., you know, the system tells you that, "All right, if you're not good at it, you're able to opt out." And starting from ninth grade, you're not gonna, you know, take advanced math anymore. And you know, you can e- you can easily think about in college. These students will not really consider subjects or majors requiring、right. math or occupations that requiring math. They would they would just consider that's not for them. Yeah, and that's real a real a real loss, a real pity. Right, right,、um, right. So another couple of topics I want to talk about, and I think these two are actually related. I mean, I was sort of surprised you saw you devoted an entire chapter to this issue of classroom participation, and the big t- takeaway from that chapter is that you know even if you control for language profici- proficiency, there's still kind of less propensity for Chinese students to speak up, even the ones who who, who、uh, self-identify as sixty percent, yeah. Sixty percent of the students think their English is is good and excellent,、um, uh-huh. but only half of them speak up often yeah, in class. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, do you find that it's better、uh, for those students who you, you also think? I think you. This was this. I thought it was interesting. You, you, you do find that 
for students who actually chose their course of study themselves rather than based on just ranking or on financial aid consideration, um, they tend to be more prone to speaking out in class, which is, 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 I think, important to point out. But what do you think is holding them back? Are you, I mean, are you, you convinced that this is just sort of a culturally in, inherent shyness or what, what do you feel like it is? And I think I wanted to relate this to the, another major theme in the book, which of course is, uh, the inability of a lot of these Chinese students to make American friends, which is, as you say, part of the reason they go to America in the first place. They, they want to acquire that cosmopolitan capital that involves making friends. But, I can't help but see these two things, that lack of uh, confidence to speak out in class and the lack of ability to sort of break out of the Chinese-only bubble and make American, you know, sort of uh, non, non-Chinese American friends. Are these two related? And, and what's your explanation for all of this? Yes, they are. Uh, they're definitely related. And we can approach this from two angles. The first angle is, I think, Kaiser, what you were probably alluded to, that is students themselves, you know, the barriers they face. So I kind of analyze the barriers in the book uh, in terms of, in addition to language, I mean, language proficiency is the obvious but insufficient explanation. Other than that, it is definitely their previous educational and cultural background that discourage speaking up in classroom. Okay, so um, American college classroom is miles different (laughs) from millions of miles away from Chinese regular classroom, which is teacher-oriented. It's more instructional-based. It's not as open-ended. As I said, the education is test-oriented. It's not encouraging the open-ended response. Okay, So so students really steeped in that kind of mindset. It's hard to break away from that mode, even though a lot of students are super aware that classroom participation Every one of them care about their grades. And they know that classroom participation is going to influence their final grade. So that really feeds into this anxiety piece that they know that it's important, but they just simply could not really do it. So so that's that's all this sort of uh, uh, student's angle. The other angle is American institutional angle. Mm. So that's actually what I want to push in the book in terms of the argument that how can American university do and adapt um, to better support Chinese students either making friends or speaking up more in classroom? I do think there, you know, there can be some sort of institutional effort in providing a more structured platform, for example, like buddy system. Right. It's it's rather than depending on individual Chinese students to be proactive or be more outgoing or be more creative in terms of uh, interpersonal relationship, and we all know that those individual factors matter and they matter, you know, a great deal. But given that those individual factors are hard to change, or what institutions can do, especially given some individual students already, they are pr- pretty proactive and they want to do it, but their effort sometimes could not really carry through. So I think institutions should play or can play a more active role rather than right now, most institutions are just let the students sink or swim. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and that is a hands-off approach. Let the individual students' abilities or attitudes uh, play a predominant role. I think institutions uh, could 
provide a more structured platforms in terms of a more systematic and sustainable、uh, network of friends. Some kinds of structured networking opportunities for students who are willing and able to engage in more of a sustained interactions with American students. Like for example, some American students who are interested in China, who are interested in learning Chinese, and、uh, pair them with. Chinese international students who want to make American friends, right? People who are, you know, both interested in soccer or basketball games, right? Right? You know, I think institutions can do more of those kinds of a bridging,、uh, providing a structured network, and so so that's the social front. It's not just that they're failing to do that. I mean, it, but it's also there's there's、uh, a you know there are, there is prejudice, there is you know xenophobia, and that is is quite prevalent often.、Um, one of the issues that you didn't really, I mean, it's it's an issue with the way that your your research was designed, but you didn't really fully explore the issue of academic integrity. You do talk about it in the book.、Uh, um, You, you you related you know quite a bit about how Chinese students have wrestled with the issues of you know, of cheating and plagiarism,、uh, but I also want to talk about you know the prejudice around these issues that they've encountered、uh, from professors and from administrators, but also from fellow students. I imagine. Can you talk about this a bit and 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 if how prevalent this is this idea that you know Chinese students are intellectually dishonest?、Um, you know, we it's so easy to you know recall. Uh, these instances, just things that have been reported in the news about cheating scandals and admissions scandals and、uh, plagiarism and 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 shoddy research, even at the at the doctoral level. But、uh, talk about that a bit. Sure. So I think I gave some examples in my book in terms of how、um, you know Chinese students who experience some kinds of academic integrity violations. Um, um, So I think there is a lot to do with again this big theme in my book, which is the gap between Chinese education system and American education system. So for a lot of students, I think、um, the academic integrity violations really arise out of ignorance, and a lot of American students they have those kind of education way back in high school. They have written papers. They know how to cite and how to quote, how to provide bibliography and so on and so forth. So I think you know American higher education institutions need to recognize that Chinese students coming from a very different system, without really having this kind of a. Predisposed assumption or even accusation that their their system is prone to cheating, I, and I think that's racist and that's xenophobia and that's not right. So I think after you admit, after the American education institution made the admission decisions, they're obligated to provide this kind of education. And in my home institution, I talk to my administrator. Uh, administration leaders many times that those education should not stop at the orientation stage. Right. I mean, think about it. When the Chinese students arrive, very jet lag and brain fog, and you packed, you know, all this important information from driver's license to safety to academic integrity. I mean, how how people how come people can really internalize it,、yeah. it right? Right, 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 right? So, and I know that some students telling me that they feel offended even before they have taken the real class. You tell them, you know, don't cheat. You know, people、uh, 
people tend to cheat, uh, or people tend to, you know, commit academic integrity without they even having the real. Experience on campus. I think that's also not very effective. So,、um, you know, I would really advise that American universities should really systematically programming instructions and educations about academic integrity in a very humane way. For example, organizing panel discussions consisting of professors and students having a dialogue with not just Chinese students but all international students in terms of what is. Sometimes the scenarios of misunderstanding. Some of the violations are really out of misunderstandings and ignorance. And having the Chinese students raising questions, international students raising questions to the panel, having people going through. I think my home institution have the academic integrity committee. Uh, that handles all the all, all those cases, consisting of faculty members. Having those faculty members share those experiences with students, and、right. those could be the year-round formatting programming effort,、um, rather than you know engaging in this kinds of、uh, one-off kind of orientation, one-off like, or you、thing. know suspicion and accusation kind of mode.、Um, right, right, right. Yeah, and and that's. Only going to feed into, as you said, this bias and you know、um, alienation that Chinese students feel on American campus. Let's talk about perceptual changes that Chinese students undergo、uh, about America, about American society, about American politics, but also about their feelings about their own home country.、Um, mm-hmm. There's this great line that you quote from Eric Liu's book, *The Accidental Asian*. You, said, you write, "Freedom, well nurtured, can grow to fidelity." And、uh, I mean, it needs a little bit of context. And in that book's context, th- that's about the author's relationship with Chineseness, with with his you know parents' homeland and and their identity. It's something that I, you know very familiar to me.、And、that's certainly the case with with me.、Um, the story of my life. It's it's a major theme, I think, with many of the students that you interviewed、uh, as they reflect on the ways that you know their years as students in America have impacted their relationship with 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 China. Um, it's also the case that they develop a more sophisticated view of American culture and American political institutions, and by more sophisticated, you know that that can actually actually mean much more critical too.、Um, can you talk about that? How the the experience of Chinese students in the U.S. has shaped the way that they've thought about America, about China, about their own personal development? I know it's a big topic, but、um, what kind of generalizations come out of your research? Yeah, yeah, I know. My chapter eight,、uh, there is,、uh, I have a whole chapter really devoted to this topic. It's a huge topic. It's actually one of the very exciting part of my research as well. So I started by asking students, like, what do you think your studying in the United States have changed you when you are revealing, like, reviewing your experiences here? So many students actually had a very positive reflection about their experiences in terms of. They feel they have grown up, like they have real grown up experience here. They have found who they are、mm-hmm. during their living and studying abroad, and that's actually is consistent with. That's why I quoted Eric Liu's line, which is a very profound line, that a freedom. So, so here, freedom is not so narrowly defined as so-called American freedom. It's not、right. s- such part、freedoms. of American creed,、right. but. Simply, you know, living, t- 
tens of thousands of miles away from their parents, watchful eyes and a familiar land,、uh, they are free to identify their interests. They are free to choose their own courses. They're free to choose their majors, even though it's fraught with sometimes family tensions and arguments with their parents. And they're free to identify the real America that is different from what they have imagined before they have arrived. And I wrote in the book that to many students, like a decade ago, that what America existed in their imaginations are very much reflected in Hollywood movies and shows such as Sex and City. <laughs> so it's 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 more of a New York City than Michigan, <laughs>、uh, yeah. for example. Yeah, no, I I, I hear that.、Um, I guess what's what's interesting is how many of them seem to have, at the same time that they've kind of come to better understand the United States and have more appreciation for for facets of America, they've also gained an appreciation for things that they might not have liked so much about China, and that that's borne out in not just your research but in in the research of a lot of a lot of other scholars. And a lot of survey results that、um, four years in the United States improves your your attitudes toward both countries. Interestingly, yes.、Yeah, so for a lot of Chinese students, they actually have a new fondness with their own country, their own ways of their Chinese ways of living that they largely took for took it for granted. So so that I think that sentiments is are pretty common among not just I think Chinese. Students, but also all immigrants, I guess you know, sort of this, you know, this distance creates fondness,、um, and、um, I think their views about America is not necessarily improving or disapproving. It's getting more nuanced and complicated. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So I think I I wrote a、uh, I wrote a story of this、uh, this young woman who actually conducted a in- independent study of American education system, and has、uh, found how unequal the system is. <laughs> this、uh, you know racial achievement gap, for example, the school segregation, all of that. Was not part of her knowledge and awareness of America, that only studying in America and studying、uh, in the field that he chose, she chose, and actually vehemently opposed by by her, her parents. parents yeah,、um, that you know she studied social studies in education, which is really training her to be a high school social studies teacher.、Um, that her parents actually she. Her parents wanted her to study mathematics and finance. Of course, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so through the study of social studies in education, she has achieved a a very nuanced understanding of America and sometimes more critical one than what she has had before. One of the really interesting perceptual changes of the U.S. I, I've seen it just countless times in Chinese friends who've who've come to the U.S. for study for work. Is this realization that despite China always talking about filial piety and our fondness, you know, Chinese fondness for claiming that Chinese culture is more anchored in the family and everything, actually the U.S. is way more family centered. And、yeah. you talked about this in the book. I mean, was this something that you heard a lot in your interviews? Yeah, yeah, that's actually one of the reasons that some of the Chinese students want to stay 
in America. And and listen, this is actually a very unique to this generation of Chinese uh, students from relatively privileged urban family backgrounds in China. And the reason that they're privileged, the reason that their parents are successful, um, because they work all the time. <laughs> they work all the time. Right, yes, right. and 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 they are actually the generation of children who really suffer from the lack of uh, quality family time. So when they are living here in the United States, and some of them actually started their life in the United States with the host family. And sometimes the host families are pretty ordinary, like you know, people who are nurses, or regular, very middle class families, or even lower middle class families, and and they found that oh wow, you know, they're not wealthy, but their family life are high quality, and、right. I want that. They eat dinner together, mom, dad. They help the kids with the homework after dinner. Everyone、yeah. watches TV together, and then they、uh, you know read them bedtime stories. Yeah, it's I I found.、Uh, It's it's actually way much more anchored in in family than、uh, the idea of of America in in China. Fascinating. So Yi, your your book suggests that the ultimate question that drives anxiety among Chinese undergraduates studying in the U.S. is is studying in the United States really worth it? And and one has to wonder how that answer might have changed recently because you、mm. know obviously I mean maybe we can spend the rest of of our time talking about this. Things have changed so very much for several reasons. Obviously, the election of Donald Trump and the subsequent rapid deterioration of U.S.-China relations, and then of course the COVID nineteen pandemic, and and the huge contrast between how the pandemic was handled here in the U.S. and handled in China, and also the you know the horrifying surge in anti Asian racism and violence, which has been you know due in no small part to this rising xenophobia over recent years. I know it's a big topic, but、um, if you were to write another chapter of your book about what's happened since twenty eighteen. What would you focus on? I mean, what are some of the major changes in the experiences of undergraduate students from China、uh, here in the states? Yeah. So, if I were to write another chapter,、um, I think I would really want to focus on the segments of Chinese student population that would really sh- change their decision of studying here.、Uh, I do believe that this trend or this tendency or preference for American higher education is. Durable, you know. There is this、um, enduring needs among Chinese students and their families for American higher education, simply because opportunity here for a good higher education are way much more abundant and、yeah. more accessible than in China. But there is a segment I, bu- I, I do believe that they're gonna sh- they're gonna change. They don't really think studying here is worthwhile.、Uh, they're gonna put a big question mark. On studying here, and that、uh, is a population probably they're able to access a good college in China. They are academically competitive, and they are qualified for、uh, those universities in, for for example, nine eighty five. Good universities, well resourced, and those university graduates、um, have a, a good. Job market,、um, usually good job market、uh, placement in China. Like your subject, Stephanie. I mean, Stephanie, who you described, she would have changed her mind now about studying in the United States, and she would have qualified, right? Yeah. So you know, some 
people like Stephanie, they're actually they want to stay here because they're actually considering their children's generation,、um, their education. And then you know she realized that oh, China now has provided a lot better international education environment or international education opportunities、um, than what she had imagined. And given the recent anti-Asian racism. Uh, people see the brutal, brutal pictures and videos about how Asians are attacked on the streets, and um, this um, also a lot of parents are very much concerned about gun violence. Sure, sure. In the United States, and um, so all of those safety concerns, um, concerns over racism, um, and even concerns over bamboo ceiling. I think、right. I, I I wrote. About it in the book,、um, it's pretty amazing that today's generation of Chinese youth—they are aware of what's ahead of them way much better than their predecessors. Largely because of, I think, the internet, <laughs> and、uh, you know, they 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 know a lot more. And、um, so, I think all of those factors are gonna sh- make. Certain segments of the population change their minds and don't really think studying in the United States、um, are worth it. And they may still study abroad and consider probably other places,、uh, Canada, Australia. I don't know. Australia may not be a good place <laughs> no, either. Not, not right now. I mean, it's sort of American problems times ten, right? Yeah, Hong Kong. Actually, you、right. know, last time I, I went to Hong Kong, in the midst of The crisis there,、uh, in the midst of chaos, and、uh, pro- the professors, my former professors, teaching Chinese University of Hong Kong, and he said the applications from PRC are just keep piling up. So they、yeah. they have they have this increasing number of applications from China. So I'm glad that you see this durability. I'm really glad that you see this durability in this in this desire to study outside of China, and I think it's it's good for everybody.、Uh, I just wish that、uh, we would reciprocate. I mean, I think that we need. I'd love to see the Biden administration really、uh, radically revamp some of the the really horrible visa restrictions, and they're, they're starting to, and it's good.、Um, there's good signs toward that,、um, but. Yeah, it, it, there's there's much to learn. I I would highly recommend that anyone who's interested in higher education read the book once again. It's called Ambitious and Anxious: How Chinese College Students Succeed and Struggle in American Higher Education. I think it would be a there's tremendous interest to I think to all of our readers. So Yingyi, thank you so much for taking the time、uh, out of your day to speak with us about this.、Um, let's move on to recommendations. And、uh, before we do that, I do want to remind our listeners that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina. If you like what we're doing with the、uh, Seneca Podcast and with the other shows in the network, the very best way that you can s- show your support for our work is to subscribe to SubChina's daily newsletter. It's just really full of fantastic reads on China, delivered to your inbox every weekday. Great value for money. Also, check out some of our free emails, like、uh, the, the the new SubChina AM. It's a business focused free. Email newsletter. So sign up, spread the word. All right, on to recommendations. Ying, why don't you kick us off? What do you have for us? Sure, I have two recommendations. One is academic. The other is not academic.、Oh, <laughs> Let me start、uh, from the academic one. So the academic one is a book I recently read, which is amazing, eye-opening. The book title is Invisible China: How the、oh, yeah, Urban yeah, Rural. Yeah. yeah, are you? Have you yeah, heard of it? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm reaching out to the authors. I really want to get them on. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, so, so that's my first recommendation. 
and that's basically about uh, you know the the rural urban and the you know the the, the haves and have not poverty the gap and how China is basically failing a lot of its. Uh, yeah, so it's, basically, it starts from this uh, uh, glaring statistics that China is has the lowest educational achievement attainment level uh, among all the middle income countries. Right. Which is not surprising, I mean, given its population and the recency with which it, it entered the ranks of middle-income countries. But yeah, but yeah, yeah. absolutely. I think I th- I think their their book is um is is a uh, is a uh, such a um, treat to read, very mm, easy mm-hmm. to read. Yeah. yeah, it's not written in an academic language at all. It's it's very exactly accessible. Yeah. yeah yeah yeah. Fantastic. And you had a second recommendation. Second recommendation is a podcast called Gushi FM. Oh, I love Gushi FM. Yeah, I love Gushi FM. Yeah, it's a it's a podcast. Um, it's a Chinese podcast. Um, four years old, and I I, I just discovered this during this pandemic, and I I was quite addicted to it. When I was cooking, I was listening to it. It's a it's um it's a story told by people who uh who were experiencing. So, so it's all kinds of uh, um, segments of Chinese society. Really, um, I feel very genuine, authentic. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. also really well produced. It's recorded well, really good sort of sound design. Yeah. Uh, every, I mean, it's everything that you want in a good podcast. In, uh, it's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I'm really so, glad. Kaiser, you have a more of a... Um, more of an expert eyes towards production side. I am more focused on the content-wise. I think the content creation is just marvelous. Oh, yeah, that goes without saying. I love it. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. fantastic. Great recommendations, both. Fantastic. Um, So mine is for, uh, there's a whole bunch of these new Asian grocery apps uh, for the United States. I mean, I, I've got some really good Chinese groceries near me, and there's the Korean H Mart. You know, it's not a 20 minute drive for me, but it's not so bad. But uh, these apps have stuff that that I couldn't manage to get. It, this one in particular called We W E E E is one I've been using recently, and and I have to admit, in part because they give you a big discount for your first purchase. So uh, it stocks things like uh, Logaima pickled chilies. I mean, everyone has like the you know the, the Logaima chili crisps or and the other Logaima sauces, but this one is actually really hard to find. It, it has a white label on it. It's it's basically just dojiao, but it's really good. It's it's just you know pickled red chilies, uh, and it's delicious. Just super strong. Um I used to get this. This pickled chili by Chuan Lao Hui, which is called Xian La Bar, like Do 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 Ban, and he goes Xian La Ban. But it, they don't sell it anymore. I can't get it. It's out of stock absolutely everywhere. But this actually comes pretty close to the taste of that. But uh, we also has things like those the old school fried dace in uh, a fermented bean black bean sauce, the Do Chi in those oval tins, which are always out of stock. Everyone buys that same one, and it's always out of stock at my local grocery. Uh, they have like um. Pokari Sweat, which is this, you know, uh, sports drink that I used to just guzzle in Beijing during the summer. You know, that's a Japanese thing. Uh, really, really good. It's all very reasonably priced. Uh, I know that there are a lot of these other apps, but this one just has a great selection of, of Chinese stuff in particular. So, Wee, W-E-E-E. So, check it out. Yee, thank you so much again. That was a really fun conversation. I learned so much reading your book. Oh, thank you, Kaiser. I, I look forward to all the delicious food you're going to post on your social media. Okay. <laughs> You've been looking at that? Uh, I do on the Facebook okay. page. All I right, saw that. Right. It's uh, You're like expert chef now. 
Uh, you know, I, I it's had to do something during lockdown. I'm I'm okay. I, I was actually just recently on a a food podcast called uh, Sauced in Translation by okay. a former Seneca guest called Howie Southworth. If you want to check it out, I got interviewed about that. And we, I talk about you know lots of stuff about Chinese food, about Mexican food, about my kind of cooking experiences, about sourdough bread, and about um yang rou of mutton and my worst food experiences in traveling in like mongolia and and uzbekistan okay. uh so it, it, it's it's kind of a fun podcast uh okay. thanks howie for right. having me on that. uh yi fantastic talking to you and uh yeah we'll, we'll talk again really soon the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcord with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week. Take care. Hey.